0: Hi, I'm Ron Coleman, a partner in the Dillon Law Group, social media legend, and free speech enthusiast. When I started the Coleman Nation podcast in the spring of 2021, its focus was on free expression and censorship on the internet. But as important as that subject is to me, which is very important, I felt hemmed in in the podcast. I wanted to spend more time talking to the interesting people I've met in my legal and free speech work without feeling a need to have them all make the same point. So I culminated the first series of the podcast and have started the second series. I hope you'll enjoy these conversations as much as I have recording them. Hello, Culminators. Today, we're going to talk to Joe McBride, Joseph McBride, a distinguished criminal attorney who got into the criminal law game because of his personal experience in, in a, as with a member of, of his family being treated to the glories of the American criminal justice system, and Joe is uh, an American hero. I got there's no other way to put it. First of all, I, to be clear, I consider anyone who practices criminal law a hero, because I don't. It scares the hell out of me. It's the responsibility is just so vast. Joe though is not only representing all kinds of criminal uh defendants but he's been very active and very vocal about what's going on with respect to january 6 defendants who have been systematically i'm gonna say it systematically denied every kind of constitutional right from a to z joe welcome to the show how you
1: doing doing good ron it's good to be here and thank you very much for having me my pleasure my pleasure you so you and i are both from brooklyn yes but yes, you, indeed
0: you have retained more of the native sound I must admit
1: the native tongue
0: <laughs> Well you know I think I think to some extent well, there are two things going on right one is, is that one of my mother one of my parents is a foreigner and my wife who is most so of my wife's from New England her, her father was from a Spanish-speaking country and I'm from Brooklyn and my mother is from a Spanish-speaking country and I think when you have foreign parents or a foreign parent, your Mm -hmm. regional accent is decreased because they I think they tend to have less of it. I could be Mm -hmm. wrong about that. But but also I think I made a very conscious decision when I was in college to try to get rid of, especially when I started doing radio, and I would hear air checks and hear my, hear my, hear hear myself. (laughs) Right, right, right. And, you know, but, you know, I, I think in your line of work, it can't do you any harm.
1: <laughs> no, no, you know, I agree. When I was in law school, I, I, I went to uh, Cardozo Law, um, uh, which is, uh, you know, it's yeshiva. And uh, so a lot, lot of accents there, a lot of New York accents for sure. <laughs> right. And, and uh, I thought about maybe toning it down, you know, in in my, my mentor um Jonathan Oberman, who's a brilliant professor, doesn't talk to me anymore, probably because of my defense of President Trump, but uh, God bless him, I still love him nonetheless. He uh, sat me down and he told me that uh, two, two really piece, good pieces of advice is that he, advice that he gave me. One was with regard to uh, presenting to a jury at a jury trial, um, don't go up there and talk like a lawyer. Everybody knows you're a lawyer. Explain it uh, to the jury as you would to uh, grandma and grandpa or uncle Jack at dinner, and you'll get a lot further. It was actually, it was great, great advice. It's worked wonders for me. And uh, of course, the other one was be your true authentic self. That's who you are. Um, people like a good criminal defense slash uh, civil rights attorney with a good Brooklyn accent. You go out there and you be you because you're the last of the dying breed. So I said, I'll take it.
0: Yes. Yep. You are it. You are it. You know, I, it's interesting too, because I had, I was once pulled aside by an older partner at my first law firm, the old K. Scholer firm, and he told me I was never going to make it. And he was right, by the way. I certainly didn't make it at K. Um <laughs> because I was too. He didn't put it this way, but I was too blue collar.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah.
0: And he said, you, you know, you, 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 you know, you. and I said to my, I'm thinking, I don't know, I, I, I made it through Princeton, I made it through Northwestern. How, how, you know, blue collar could I possibly be? Answer is no. I actually, he was right. I never fit into the world of corporate law yeah. because because I'm not the child of the professionals. I'm not the, even the child of you know of, of Americans on one side. You know, uh, I I think it does give you. But once you recognize who you are, I say you got that great advice from someone who cared about you. He's kind of caring about me, also, but he tried to give. He gave me advice that I couldn't follow.
1: Look, you know, um, maybe he was right in part or wrong in part, but I, I, I'm glad that uh, you didn't fit into that world. It means that you have a soul and a conscience. Right. So, uh, no, I think at
0: the end of the no, you're 100 right. I mean, you know, I, and I have plenty of friends who, who who succeeded in that world, but I couldn't do it. Right. I couldn't do it. I'll tell you another story also about being what I said before about being a criminal law, law uh, you know uh, I learned this from Scott Greenfield, I think, CDL, the criminal defense lawyer. Well, so my mother, my wife's father, blessed memory, was a surgeon. And you know, first of all, no no hus- no Jewish husband can ever live up to his father-in-law. Let's start with that.
1: <laughs> it's not happening. But if
0: he's a heart surgeon, Forget it. Forget it. And certainly, I mean, I can't even prescribe, you know, antibiotics, much less sure. crack open someone's heart, uh, chest. So really, I'm a, I'm a bum. But my wife is is a retired lawyer, and she 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 didn't practice a lot of law. She mostly writes about law now, but she, in her brief corporate law career, she um she, she learned that it wasn't for her. But when I was when we got married and she would see me coming home and i would tell her about the work i was doing and she saw the kind of hours i was keeping she said i guess i have to admit you you corporate lawyers uh, you, you litigators really are the surgeons of the legal profession you, uh, you really you and coming from her right whose father was a surgeon but i maintain that we may be the surgeons especially those of us who actually go into court not these corporate but the criminal defense lawyers are the brain surgeons i, because, that. I just don't just the, the responsibility and, and the fact is not not everybody who works in criminal defense is the next um you know learned in hand
1: right.
0: <laughs> but they <laughs> but they may but they're often very very effective all the same
1: right right you know um i grew up uh, my, my mother's Puerto Rican, my father's mixed European, mainly uh, Irish, uh, some Polish and German. Uh, but I grew up, you know, uh, oldest guy in my family, three brothers. We had a bunch of foster kids come through the house. My parents were foster parents and my, my, my brother Anthony's adopted. And uh, um, you learn a lot of life skills Uh, mediating disputes, putting people in their place, being held responsible for the entire tribe of children underneath (laughs) you, and all that stuff you deployed in the criminal law practice. It's one of those things where your life skills are very transferable. It doesn't behoove you just to be a walking textbook. You gotta know people, bedside manners.
0: When did you decide you wanted to do criminal defense?
1: I decided that I wanted to do criminal defense in 2006.
0: And that's when your brother got involved with his situation? Yeah,
1: that's when my brother was, uh, he was wrongfully arrested and, 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 and accused in 2005. In 2006, wrongfully convicted, uh, sentenced to 15 years in prison for something he absolutely did not do. And uh, as I stated before, uh, my mom and dad are good people. I come from a traditional Catholic home, uh, and they, uh, my mom couldn't have more kids. So we adopted my brother, Anthony, and we had dozens of kids come through our home and the one guy that they were able to adopt to watch him get dragged away by the system. And when he got dragged away, he, he was actually, it was, it was just, it was surreal because he had the old black and white striped uniform on You're and kidding. shuffled in with chains on. Where was this? A, this was in Greenville, Tennessee, East Tennessee. Yeah. East Tennessee. My mom and dad relocated down in Northeast Tennessee after my dad retired from Con Edison right around that time, a year or two before that. And, um, you know uh watching him get drug, drug away like that and then and then it was one thing to sit in my brother's room and look up at his at his sports stuff and the cell phones and to go but it's man by the time he gets out the whole world's going to be different then when i went back inside and i watched my mom and dad just sitting there praying you know and, and, and going over scriptures and talking to each other consoling each other they were broken and um you know uh i was actually Considering it's not my calling for sure, but I was considering a vocation to the Catholic priesthood at the time. Turns out I don't have the gift of celibacy, but you know it's just not for me. <laughs> this is a gift; it's something you work for. <laughs> yeah, whatever it is, I can't do it. So um, uh, I had just really gotten the answer about a few days before that that I actually wasn't called to be a priest, and I was just like, God, you know, what am I supposed to do in my life? And then this happens with my brother, and, 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 my, and I just basically, I, I felt God tell me inside that, um, you know, uh, go and sell all that you have and come follow me. I want you to be an outspoken Catholic attorney. Wow. Um, we're going to start here with working on your brother's case, and just trust him, me. I'll take you by the hand. If you, let, if, you, if you let me lead you, I'll guide you, and together we'll go. So do you
0: really feel that it was a spiritual message for you?
1: Oh, 100%. There's no question about it.
0: That's that's to me because, because I mean, look, everything everything is a spiritual message, but we we most of most of the time we don't want to listen. I mean, we convince ourselves that we know better than what God has in store for us, which is never the case.
1: It's never. It's uh. It's never the case.
0: Now, where were you in life at that point? Had you
1: two thousand six. You were not in law school yet, obviously. No, I hadn't gone to college. I hadn't gone to college yet. You were, how, how old were you? I was uh, 25. 25. So um, I was in the... Hadn't gone had to
0: college and you were 25. What were you doing? So
1: I was in the mixed martial arts world for a long time, um, uh, fighting and, and training guys. Uh, I, I was naturally, a naturally good fighter, but just not naturally disciplined enough well, I, I, it wasn't my calling. And what I mean by that is this. You know, I was a good athlete. I was a good fighter. Um, I, you know, I, 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 was a, I was a good, I uh, had a business on the side. I was always a good business guy. I had a good sense about me. I was a street smart kid from Brooklyn. I knew how to get stuff done. But uh, none of those things were ever to the point where it became a vocation for me. But I knew that once the thing happened with my brother, and once I knew that this was my calling that this was all or nothing. And I'm a very all or nothing guy. So it made sense that I never became a great success in any of those things beforehand because I just could never find a career that I was all or nothing at. When I I figured out, I would take my, my, my business sense. And I would take my, 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 my natural fighting abilities and my faith and I would combine them into becoming an attorney. And look, it was going to cost me everything. I knew, I knew I was going to die a thousand deaths. I knew it, but uh, I, I I also God put it in my heart that the end would be worth it, and that the means would justify the end. So I sold out, um, and uh, I I I went to school. I showed up at John Jay College, and um, I, I I got in. I, I tell you, I talked my way in. I smoothed my way in. I'm very good at cajoling people, you know. And and uh, I I, uh, I wind up uh, being a, basically a straight A student when I was there, and I, I got into a good law school. I applied to like. 33, 34 law schools. I got into like 27 of them. And- um, If
0: only you would have known you were going to get into
1: so many. Yeah, it was-,
0: it was, it was You must have spent 30. thousands
1: of dollars on application fees. You know, I got to tell you the truth. I was flat broke. And I and, and, and I did the poor man's appeal on all of them. And I think I paid for like one. Oh, all right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I was a broke student. I had left a, I had left a cash money business to to go to law, college and law school. And by the time I, I was there, um, I, I, it was just really, it was just really me and God, <laughs> um, in, in the end, because, uh, every step of the way required great faith. Um, it was just, uh, going deeper and deeper and deeper. And until I finally was able to cross the threshold and get admitted to the bar and then look at the judge and go, yeah, guys have no idea who you just let in the door. <laughs> 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 I ain't going anywhere. <laughs> so when you, what year were you admitted? I was admitted in 2016. I uh took you're me a, 10 years to become a lawyer.
0: You you're a baby in the profession. You you I mean one thing about criminal law. I I no way means to take away from you, but you can one thing about about that part of the legal profession, you can get into the action and make a name
1: for yourself very fast. Very fast. You know, um I did my internships at the uh Uh, different 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 places you know i thought maybe i'd become a da and work it from the other side i said i can't i can't be a part of this and uh then i uh um i uh i wound up going to the innocence project working on wrongfully convicted cases i was there in manhattan for a year and a half then i graduated went straight into the legal aid society in manhattan i started as a public defender there um, I did, I did well, I always carried myself as a private attorney. I always knew it was a matter of time before I, I, I left and uh, I did very well. Uh, I, I just, uh, I hit the ground running. I, 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 basically won all my cases and, and I just, at some point after the, uh, 2016 election, all right, hold on uh, a second. People yeah, have to understand ahead.
0: when a lawyer says I won all my cases, that means the cases you took to a jury. Of course. Not the cases that you pled out.
1: Oh, no, 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 no. I mean, sorry. I don't want to. That's a good distinction, Ron. I apologize. You and no. I
0: understand. And yeah, you know, the other three people listening of two of whom might be lawyers might understand, but people up there, you would, because that would be a remarkable thing. No, no, no. I don't, no, I don't no. doubt that you're
1: capable of it, but. No, you know, it's it's a worthwhile distinction. And, and, and I apologize.
0: But that's and, and so. So that's still an amazing accomplishment. Yeah, that if they if the, if you couldn't get the deal or your client would not make the deal or whatever, and you took it to trial, you won, you got not guilty verdicts in every one of those
1: trials, I got not guilties in every one. In, in in the cases, there was one or two cases where we were going into the case. Uh, there was one case, for instance, where a guy was charged with drug possession, he had done a year in jail, they, they misrepresented something in the grand jury, I was able to get him out. And then I was able to make, uh, to go in and beat the top charges. He went down on the misdemeanor. He had already done the year. The guy had 47 convictions. He went home that day. That's a win. You know what I mean? So um, it's relative, but I did well. And I was able to take that and bring it out into the real world with me. And uh, you know, I've been doing, I've been doing, I think, pretty good and honorable work ever since.
0: Sounds like it. Sounds like it. Let's talk a little bit about those, about plea deals since, since it kind of came up. Sure. There's a lot of misunderstanding um, and, and a lot of confusion. I mean, one of the things that that always uh, amuses me is that there are certain very well-known criminal lawyers, and they charge lean-on-your-house type fees. And, of course, they're always pleading out. They They never go to trial. They never go to trial. Right. Explain why explain how it is that nonetheless skill and experience go into that plea deal process and why these people seem to be worth it to the people who you know, and and I assume that it's true of you as well yeah of course so of course you know it's what what's what's going on
1: so um it's a uh, it's 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 the assessment of consequences is risk versus reward if you're facing a uh, 20 30 years in jail or or, or millions of dollars in fines let's use the, the jail example right you're, you're 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 facing life in prison you're facing 20 years 15 years in jail um, you could go to trial and win but if you lose you can get you can get banged over the head with a, with a big sentence especially if you have prior offenses and if your attorney can cut you a a, a deal that uh, eliminates the exposure of trial and sends you to jail for two years, as opposed to 22 years, that is a, a good deal um, for you to take. And you may want to take that. So any, anytime I litigate a criminal case, I am saying, look, we're going to trial and we're preparing for trial and the threat of trial and my skill as a trial attorney looms. But I'm also negotiating my pants off the whole time trying to get my client the best deal possible under the sun. I have walked into the well and prepared for trial and and, and had a deal offered to me right there that we couldn't refuse and take it right there because it makes sense. So you negotiate concurrently to, 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 to the threat of going to trial up until the very last second, because that's what you owe your client. You owe your client say, Hey, I'm going to work to try to eliminate the possibility of trial for you. Even though I think we have, this is our chances, uh, and if we get a deal, we an offer we can't refuse, we take it. If that's what you want to do, and if you don't want it, then we then then we go to trial. But you negotiate the entire time. It's something you have to do.
0: And are prosecutors assessing you or Are they saying, you know, I would take this case to trial, except it's McBride or it's X or it's Y. Or sure, that's part of their calculation
1: as well. Sure. So like you look at the classic, look at the, uh, the OJ Simpson defense team, right? You had, you had Shapiro and you had uh, uh, Johnny Cochran, right? And Johnny Cochran was the trial guy and, and Shapiro was the guy that was known for cutting deals, right? So if anybody was going to negotiate a deal, it was going to be Shapiro. Co- but Cochran's uh, the the fact that you wouldn't have to go to trial and deal with Johnny Cochran was this threat, right? So of course that's going to speak volumes, And, um, uh, uh, prosecutors who know you will be able to assess, uh, you know, do a a proper threat assessment of who you are at trial and then prosecutors who don't know you, well, then they find out after or during, and they go, Oh no. Right. So (laughs) it's always a good moment. It's fun.
0: Now, you know, I always have the impression that a, a lot of CDLs are former prosecutors. They've at least spent some time on the other side, uh, but what percentage would you say
1: oh I'd say it's probably it's probably 50 percent that's a lot yeah
0: now a lot of these guys become really really vicious anti-prosecution yeah you know I mean it's you know they they've seen it I mean what would you, what's your, uh, and I want to talk about January 6th in a second, Um, but now that you've been doing this for not very long still, for six years, um, but you've gotten to know prosecutors, and you've gotten to know criminal defense lawyers who are former prosecutors, has your view of what they do for a living changed in any way from the way you saw it when you first
1: came out, uh, uh I, I want to say yes. So, I first, so you know, I traced my, my my legit legal experience back to like probably 2008. I was fortunate where even in college, I got some really good uh internships, I clerked for a few judges during that time, and I was able to learn so much from them. And then I was at the DA's office for a year 2009.
0: Oh, so you see, so at least you got you got to look at.
1: Yeah, I got a good five five years. I mean, I, I got into uh, a really good program at John Jay where they were able to get, uh, uh, I'm Puerto Rican, so it's a Puerto Rican Latin American Studies program. And if you were a first generation college student, which I am, a member of a person of color, or, you know, historically, you know, whatever community, you can get into these programs. And I qualify for all those things because it's true. So I took full advantage and I was able to get these internships that would otherwise be held available for the for the very 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 privileged. And I was able to see a good scope and see that people ultimately, people become prosecutors, I believe, for good reasons. And uh, I think people become defense attorneys uh, for good reasons as well. And I think and with regard to the prosecutors, as time goes by, uh, it becomes uh, less about uh, justice. Prosecutors have this immense, uh power in their hands right they're lawyers but they also have the power of the state so when it comes to law and criminal law they're held to a higher standard because they're wielding the power of, of governmental force and that's something that that no one else in criminal law or law at, at, at large has and they they in this discretion is one of the attractive things that why they become prosecutors but then they find out within the first year or so that their supervisors, take their discretion away from them. And they're told it's a numbers game. And that's to go out there and they get convictions and they take the humanity out of it. And I saw that during my time as a public defender, because I um, was with the prosecutors in the well of the court for eight hours a day, several days a week. What, county, what county were you working in? in? New York County in Manhattan. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And um, I got some of those guys are my best friends. I became great friends with them. I actually had more in common with them than I had some of the public defenders I worked with because I'm not it turns out I'm not a communist. That's another, that's another discussion. <laughs> so I um I have great respect for them. And I was able to understand, even with even a lot of my brother's wrongful conviction, that lots of these people came to this for good reasons. Now, DC, DC is a disgusting, immoral, lost place. There is no moral compass here there is no sense of humanity on the other side there is no spe- respect for the constitution if the federal government is coming for you it says well we have no check and if we are if we are vertically integrated from here to the presidency and most of congress agrees with us we're just going to run roughshod over the constitution and do whatever we want to do and that's what they're doing to the january 6th is in the worst in the worst way possible and it's i it's it's disturbing it's disgusting and I don't use these terms lightly, but you know, when I look at how the Nazi regime came to power, when I look at how the Soviets took control, the this what's happening now is not much different than all of that,
0: you know i'll I'll tell you the truth. I, you're right. And you know, obviously i'm I'm apt to be defended by rash comparisons. but the degradation of the rule of law in particular in in washington dc on so many levels but but especially with respect to what's going on in the district of the district of columbia um and i have to be careful because i'm admitted to that court as well and I, i can't quite say what i would necessarily say in private but it is really really distressing um, You're one of several J6 criminal defense lawyers that I know, and what's amazing to me is how people like you and Marina Medvin and Dan Hull, you just keep keeping on. I mean, okay, give an example of the of the kind of things you're seeing in these prosecutions that you would never have seen in new york county or new or the southern district even the southern district of new york sure with where, where the arrogance is
1: <laughs> yeah, where the way, southern district way up right. yeah of course so uh the first primary example is the controversy behind the application of the bail reform or uh, statute and bail reform act um If you're accused of a crime, a federal crime, whether it's some federal kind of trespassing or um, serious drug trafficking or crimes of violence, you have to be deemed, uh, number one, a flight risk. If you're not a flight risk, you have to be dangerous to the extent where your release would danger uh, the public, it would danger uh, uh, members of the public and Also, in addition to that, there has to be no condition or combination of conditions set forth by pretrial services under which you could not be rendered uh, not a threat. So, for instance, uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, right? This guy, he just defrauded people of a a gazillion dollars. Um, He's out on bail, right? He's out on bond. How did that happen, right? Because they, they had to extradite him. From a foreign country but yet he was deemed not a threat that makes no sense right and, and they, no, well, not, not a flight risk certainly not a flight risk so yeah well yeah well I mean, he, he he objectively he could be a flight risk that's not well that's what i'm oh, saying is, is yeah. that
0: here's a guy who had to be extradited yeah you can take a guy's passport away but let, who are we kidding right if anyone's a flight risk it's someone it's you, him. Have, you have to bring someone in from another country
1: that's that's exactly right right or you got to be dangerous, like Osama bin Laden dangerous, right? El Chapo dangerous. These guys, January 6 6ers the vast majority of them have no criminal records of any kind. Most of them have never been arrested before. And they're certainly not flight risk. And the idea that no combination of conditions, that home detention, ankle monitoring bracelets, having to take drug tests and regular check-ins, that somehow the good people in your house as well, somehow the that these people are so dangerous that they can't be released into the community is just wrong. So what did they do? They took out all the previous precedent leading up to January 5th, and they created new law for January 6th that applies specifically to January 6 6thers, judging them and judging their sense of dangerousness best based on their conduct that day. That is not supposed to happen. That is what has happened, and as a result, we have had men who have been behind bars under egregious, disgusting, horrifying circumstances for two years as of today. And some of them, many of them have not even gone to trial. It's unconscionable. It should have never happened. It's, 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 a, it's a gross, gross stain on American jurisprudence. And it happened right here in D.C. It's not happening anywhere else.
0: All right, But but are we talking about prosecutors? I mean, on the one hand, judges are the ones applying these new criteria. On the other hand, are you surprised that the prosecutors are asking for it? In other words, would you if, if this were this if this were let's say the Eastern District right which is not so different from the Southern District and in the fact sometimes they feel like they got to prove something but yeah are, are, are nonetheless a normal federal district or, or, or New York or New York State Court would the prosecutors argue for that? whether or not, in other words, I'm asking, is it it only the judges or is it also the prosecutors?
1: No, it's. Or is there a difference? Yeah, that's a good question. It's both of them. And um, the way it worked is this, right? So in the beginning, most of these guys either turned themselves in or they got arrested in their home jurisdictions. They went in front of the magistrate in their home jurisdictions. Magistrate said, we're letting you out. Right, you're not, you're, you're objectively not a violent person. I don't like what you did at the Capitol, and you'll sort that out in, during your trial. But locking you up, this is ridiculous. I'm not doing that. What happened is DC immediately filed for a stay uh, and, and appealed all of those decisions. And it pulled original jurisdiction, pulled it out of the magistrate's hands, back to DC court, had these guys extradited, and everybody who came back to DC, 100% of them. In their next hearing were all locked up and they started doing that first it started with a group of 33 people then it became like 300 people then it became 800 people and it just kept happening so if in other words if for the first year and a half if you were indicted and say you got picked up in houston and a houston judge let you out dc would appeal it drag you back to dc and lock you up and it's unprecedented and the
0: dc circuit signed off on this yes I mean, is there anything that the D.C. Circuit doesn't sign off on when it comes to, you know, the the, the district courts? There, I mean, I saw after what they did in the um, in the Flynn case, I, I said, okay, this isn't this is this going back to your earlier point. This is an illegitimate regime regime. This is not a rule of law regime.
1: Right. So, how about what Speed Trial Act? So this is what happened with Speedy Trial. You get pulled in, and the government goes like this. This is the biggest investigation in the history of the United States. It's got the biggest amount of discovery and corresponding budget. We're trying to pull together people, so on and so forth. In addition to that, um, you have all the complications due to COVID-19. So in the interest of justice, we need the Speedy Trial Act waived in order to facilitate, to come up with this, the, 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 the discovery that the defense attorneys and client their clients needed these cases. So we said, okay, listen, if you're going to need time, exorbitant amount of time, these guys could foresee we be in jail for six months, a year, two years before trial happens, let them out. Oh, no, 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 they have to stay in. So not only did they have to stay in, um, because it was a pandemic-related jail time, They used the pandemic as a pretext to put everybody in solitary confinement because they had to isolate them. So these guys did like a year in the box, which which, which broke them. You can't do that to a pretrial detainee. It's insane. And then finally, we owe your discovery onto USAFX. We are rolling out this new system, Relativity. We're rolling out Evidence.com. You can't use it unless you get a license. You can't use it unless you get a training. There's a protective order. The public can't see the discovery. By the time they started rolling it out, it was another delay of six months for us to just figure out how to use it. And then when they had rolled the majority of it out, they started dumping it all on us and going, oh, we're ready for trial. What's the matter with the defense? They're not ready for trial on Tuesday. Excuse me. It just took you a year to give me this material. We haven't even begun to look at it. And you want us to go to trial now? Are you insane? And that fight took another year. And they they knew that was going to happen. And now we're two years down the road and our first trial is going to happen on Monday. And these
0: judges have basically admitted, I've heard some of these sentencing um, statements by the judges, they essentially admitted that they're treating these defendants, these charges are being treated differently because of the political and cultural and historic, whatever you want to call it, nature of the January 6th.
1: That's right. That's right.
0: That's really problematic.
1: It It is problematic. and as, as you know, as you're aware, we have to take a trip back in order to understand the genesis of this problem. We have to go back to, to September 11th. And after September 11th, the world changed forever. It never returned to the state that it was in. September 11th began the era of if you see something, say something. It was the official spy on your neighbor's campaign that began then. So, um... The, the media coverage and the you see something, say something got to the point where I will be the first person to admit this. If I got on the plane in 2003 and if I saw a gentleman next to me who was dressed in Muslim garb, I would go like this. Oh God, what am I doing here? Is the plane going to go down? That guy probably prays five times a day. He doesn't eat pork. He doesn't drink. He's probably got 10 kids, pays his taxes, do all these things. And I made a judgment on that guy about my safety based on you see something, say something. And then a few years later, the question came look, we have these people in DC, in, in, I was going to say DC Guantanamo. We have these people in Guantanamo Bay. They're enemy combatants. But as the United States, do we torture them? And a lot of people were like, they're terrorists, you gotta to torture them. Waterboard them and get whatever you can get out of them. And other people, mainly mainly on the left, the ACLU, Amnesty International, said, Hey, 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 this is America. We don't do that here. I understand you want the information, but we can't become like the other side. What Once we come like we become like the other side, there's no turning back. And once that happens to these people, there's a substantial risk that it'll happen to us. Oh, that'll never happen to us. Well, guess who's the next. Guess who's the next, who's the newest version of Al-Qaeda? It's your white MAGA Republican. And you are the threat to the regime. And because you're a white MAGA Republican, you're by definition a domestic terrorist. And because you're a domestic terrorist, in their eyes, an insurrectionist, you have become a member of a subconstitutional class. And that's how they've done it.
0: Has any of this stuff gotten anywhere close to the Supreme Court?
1: No. no, no. Um, there's one case that's happening. Uh, it's it's, it's at the circuit now. Arguments were made on December twelfth regarding the fifteen twelve charge. Judge Nichols's uh couple decisions that that he that he dismissed the case, which was the right decision because the fifteen twelve obstruction charge is inapplicable to January sixth. Um, and that may go. Um, uh, if if uh, the circuit comes out. Uh, somehow finds that there was clear error, which they, they can't, but they probably will. Um, that, that'll go. Uh, other than that, th- the problem is that these guys are uh, middle income, white, America, uh, you know middle America people, uh, blue collar, no savings, no pre- pre- previous uh, interaction with the criminal justice system. They don't have the money, to take it all the way, and that's why we've had to go out. That's why I have had to get on TV. I go on the podcast. I, I I hold myself out there to raise money for my clients because none of my clients can pay for their own cases. I've had to raise like ninety percent of everything in order to make this happen.
0: And you also can't you can't use, I assume, uh, you know, a lot of the payment uh, processing and fundraising platforms because the social media. World has decided that you are they're already, they're already guilty.
1: That's right, and, was, and, uh, go. and they're the
0: wrong kind of guilty. They're not the, they're not the Portland kind of guilty. Right. They're the they're the January the nine
1: the January sixth kind of guilty. Two guys can walk up to a police station. Both of them can throw Molotov cocktails. If one guy's on the left, it's okay. The other guy's on the right, he's going to jail.
0: Has there been any moment? in your colloquies whether it's pre i mean it's almost all pre-trial at this point where a judge has let any light shine in where there's been any acknowledgement that there might be appeal issues here that there might be problems with how this is being done anything that you can see other than those dismissals that are on appeal
1: um so uh all no with one yes so generally these judges uh you know, who are you, Mr. New York? Why are you here? It's very prim and proper here in D.C. And, and, and things are done a certain way. And, you know, they don't like me. And it's what it is because uh, I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a D.C. establishment guy. I can accept that. You know, I'm willing to take hits from my clients. That's what a good lawyer does. That's right. Absolutely. Be- being disliked is one of the things we are paid for. That's it. We're sword and we're shield. And that's your job. But just recently, yesterday, actually, um, I appeared in front of Judge Hogan, uh, Thomas Hogan, 85 years old, most senior judge on the court. And he uh, said to us that uh, uh, looks like uh, I'm going to be retiring January 31st. Judge, we we just scheduled a trial with you. He goes, I hate to do it, but I'm retiring and, and didn't really give a whole lot more um and then he looked at us and and, and we, we we set our pleasantries the guy was you know distinguished career and and he goes uh there's a, a thousand more uh of these cases coming and uh, i'm 85 years old i don't want to spend the next four or five years doing this and basically said i'm out i'm paraphrasing here and that information i don't know if it was public or not i think it was suspected but for me you know, that was the judge saying, look, I've been on the bench. I'm the most senior judge on the bench. I practice in DC court. I've been a district court judge here since 1982 chief judge at one time, chief judge of the Pfizer court at another time. I'm distinguished. I'm honored. And I, um, uh, I love my job. I've been here doing this all this time and we have some of the most beautiful and world changing cases, especially with regard to policy and the constitution come through this court and I I've been doing these January 6 cases for the past two years. Now I got to do it for, for you know for, for four or five more. No, uh, my time can be better spent. I'm leaving. And for me, he didn't say anything other than that. And but I, but for me, and I don't want to give the appearance of impropriety, but it felt like he was just saying that. Look, I'm 85. The next couple of years of my life, I'm not going to spend it on something that doesn't have any worth. And so I'm leaving. And uh, we were all like, wow. Like afterwards, like you know. No one knows why he's really walking away, but he's walking away. And uh, he did say there's another thousand of these coming, and that's not a good sign. And maybe he just doesn't want to be a part of it. I don't know.
0: On that extremely depressing note, believe it or not, Joe, we've been talking for three quarters of an hour.
1: Wow, that's great.
0: It's been fascinating listening to you. I'm, you unfortunately confirmed everything that I've heard and read. And I, as I said, you know, I, I talked to some of, I talked to some of the guys um and i include marina as one of the guys notwithstanding her very <laughs> guy-like um appearance it is It it is an, an absolute travesty and uh i don't i don't know where to go with it i mean short you know and, and what's also been depressing of course i don't have to tell you is the absolute lack of comment maybe it's not absolute but for all practical purposes the the way republicans in office and republican political leaders have just stood and watched this all happen they're part of that culture they don't dare uh depart from the orthodoxy of
1: insurrection it's unfortunate what i can say is this um religious denominations aside uh i do believe that uh america is being punished um for uh for for being lost uh the pandemic is is a biblical plague and there's no two ways about it wherever it came from it's a plague nonetheless things there's wars rumors of more wars the economy is bad you have these people in power people need to wake up people need to understand that america is a special plea is a special place Because a very special person, the creator of the entire universe, deemed it as such. And we have forgotten that these beautiful Judeo-Christian roots that we have in this country, we've unilaterally betrayed them as the people. And there has to be a way back. And when you look back over the history, and if you look back, especially into the Old Testament and Israel, there are many times when God has just said, you know, I've had enough with you. You're going to get spanked. And sometimes that spanking lasts hundreds of years, right? Right. And we're trying to avoid that now. I recently, had a couple weeks ago, I I, I appealed to the public for three days of fasting and praying, which just ended last night. Um, And uh, we did three days of fasting and praying. And I wrote to uh, Archbishop Carlo Maria Viganò, who's one of the the, the most conservative, beautiful leaders of the Catholic Church. And uh, I I, I asked him for his blessing and for his participation. And he wrote back to me. and, and, And he sanctioned it. And um, it was a beautiful and very, very uh, heartfelt, uh, uh, almost to us, message and seal of approval from, from the kingdom above that God is with us in this. And then members of the Jewish community uh, 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 reached out to us. R- Rabbi Yehuda Levin and his people wrote this beautiful letter in solidarity with us asking uh, for Jews to fast on the 10th the of Tevis, which was January 3rd, commemorating the fall. Uh, the breaching of, 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 of the walls of Jerusalem. And you had this beautiful coming together of peoples of faith, where we all were fasting and praying at the same time, looking up to our God and saying, God, we are, we are desperately in need of your help. And we are very, very, very sorry for our sins and for the sins of our nation. And if our leaders don't have the courage, if our leaders don't have the wherewithal, the faith to do it, please accept our prayers on behalf of ourselves, our families, and of course our leaders as well. We understand that we're just these these minuscule little people here, but for whatever it's worth, we know that this is a part of the deal, and we're very, very sorry. We're fighting against evil. You're the author of all that is good. Please help us win. And look, David needed five stones and a slingshot. Gideon needed 300 people and, 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 some, and some faith. And I know that God is ultimately in this fight, that God loves the United States of America, that God will not abandon us, he will not abandon this country, and that this will eventually end. And uh, I'm going to be counted among the people who stood on the right side of this, no matter what happens. So help me God. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. Thank you.
0: Good luck Monday.
1: Thank you very much. All right, thanks. Thank you very much. And right, good bye. job is to you.
0: Thanks a lot. Stay in touch. You too.